Hey, Stevie Taylor here. Welcome to episode 42 of the Gig Life podcast. If it's your first time to the podcast, welcome. Nice to have you here. Have a good look around and hope you can stay a while. If you're returning, as always, nice to see you back. So if you really dig the podcast, please tell your friends about us. Jump on your social media and, you know, share a link or something or share an episode. Uh, If you want to talk to me, pretty easy to get hold of, to be honest. You can hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, The Gig Life Podcast, or you can send me an email at thegiglifepodcast at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you by Cuzzy Tea Urban Apparel. Tall tees, long sleeves, polo shirts, hoodies, and caps. Locally owned, affordable, premium quality, fresh designs. Check out the Slick As online store at www.cuzzytea.com. Uh, that's C-U-Z-Y for Cuzzy. And a brand new shop is now opened up out at Parkley Markets every Saturday and Sunday. So go check out Cuzzy Tea, where you belong. guest today is Jade McRae. Jade is a singer from Sydney, currently touring the world with renowned American guitarist Joe Bonamassa. Born into a very musical family, music was obviously everywhere, which led her to start playing piano at the age of three. From there, she's attended the Conservatorium of Music. She's backed artists such as Jimmy Barnes, Cold Chisel, Renee Geyer, Neil Finn, amongst others. Had a very successful solo career, recorded two previous solo albums, reluctantly became a TV celebrity. She's hit the highs of the highs and the very lows and everything in between. I'm very excited to bring you this one. So, ladies and gentlemen, please be seated for Jade McRae. Cheers. Rolling. Hello, Jade McRae. Hi there. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Good. Welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Sweet as you're back in town for a bit. I am. Um, you're currently touring all over the world with some guy called Joe Bonamassa or something like that. Some yeah, guitar some guy dude. thinks he can pick <laughs> yeah. up a guitar here and there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it's been great. I've been working with Joe for well on and off since 2015, but yep. the last couple of years, uh, almost full time touring. So been amazing we're just um just about to take off on a european tour and playing some pretty epic epic shows there we have three nights in a row at uh, royal abbott hall in london <sighs> really and oh, wow. um have and you ever been there before I, I actually have played there once before with oh, him right. already oh, right. so now i'm like oh yeah back there you know oh. back at 
just that old place. popping in there again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is ridiculous, you know. It's it's such an iconic venue. And uh, the first time we played there, um, Mahalia Barnes and I were doing the gig and uh, we looked at each other after a couple of songs and both of us just were like, is this even happening? Is this yeah. real life? And yeah. um, there had been a lot of moments like that working with him. But, That's great. Yeah, but yeah. it's really nice to be back in Sydney just for a minute. I love getting back home when yeah. I can. Yeah, yeah, but you're just saying to me before we went on air, it, you've jammed too much in. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm doing it to myself, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm a sucker for punishment. But uh, I guess when I, when I go away, I leave behind, you know, a lot of friends and family here and yep. um, most of my time is spent overseas now. So when I'm back for a week or two weeks, um, I usually try to cram in as much social and as much, you know, music work at home yep. as I can, which makes for a, a, a hectic time. But... Uh, it's also really kind of a nice full time for, you know, for the heart and everything. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah. And maybe if you had come back and not had all that stuff to do, you might leave going, oh, I should have done that when I was home. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you feel like you're missing out when you're away a bit. So yeah. it's that's, nice to squeeze it all in. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's um, let's roll right back to the to how it all began for you. You've got a um, very musical mother and father. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about them. Okay. Uh, well, mum and dad are both from New Zealand. Yep. And uh, um, what, what part of New Zealand? Well, Dad grew up in Auckland. He's yep. he um, born in Onehunga, mm-hmm. and uh, my mum's from the very, very far north, just outside Kaitaia, mm-hmm. uh, tiny little um, village called Ahipara. Um, and so they they grew up uh, over in New Zealand, and they met in Auckland um, in the 1960s, very early, or maybe even the late 50s. Mm. Uh, and they um, they sort of were sweethearts right from then, and have basically been together ever since uh, and um, that's a long time ago now so they've mm. it's pretty amazing I think to have made that work for that long yep uh, but mum's a singer and dad's a piano player and that's how they met was through music mm-hmm. in a jazz club and uh, you know they've both had um, very sort of diverse and interesting careers uh, as individuals and uh, and together as collaborators right uh, so um, they moved from New Zealand to Australia for a little while. And then in the mid-60s, uh, moved over to America for a while and Dad uh, became the piano player for the Buddy Rich Big Band while they were there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and Wow, uh, man. They both just sort of really started to hit their stride and pick up a lot of session work in the States and uh, then decided to move uh, over to the UK uh, in the later 60s, I think. Oh, no, maybe maybe still mid-60s. Um and they spent almost 20 years there uh, based in the UK where they were doing a lot of a lot of touring work and also a lot of original music work, so sort of balancing both of them um, and worked with, gosh, a, a real – there's a big list of people and I'm probably going to miss out some of the key ones, but mum worked good. a lot with um, people like Van Morrison, uh, Rod Stewart for a long time, Cat Stevens um, – Dad uh, produced a lot of music for uh, Scott Walker. Uh, he was played with a lot of people who came through the UK, played with Chet Baker, um, Clark Terry. Uh, Dad was the MD of the comedy, um, British comedy show, uh, The Goodies. Was he? Yeah, so he, he wrote a lot of that crazy, silly music <laughs> oh, with Bill Oddie. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they, they did a whole bunch of different stuff and then they also made their own um, records, which were sort of – Sort of in the um, it was all it was the seventies, so uh, a lot of it was sort of um, you know, funk or crossover jazz, and Dad was involved with some um, 
much more experimental music at the time, sort of psych, um, psych fusion and all sorts of stuff. So, right. um, yeah, they, they've had very... Frank, Frank Zappa sort of type yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 more instrumental really, right. but um, uh, playing with uh, some of the guys from, it's more obscure music, but um, from Soft Machine and he formed a band called Matching Mole with some of those guys and also uh, was, was involved with another band called Nucleus, which is um, from that same sort of 70s fusion psych kind of scene. Uh, yeah, so they've done, you know, and I mean the list of their their musical sort of adventures goes on and on and on. Uh, but they've done lots of different stuff and, and now um, we moved to Australia. I was born there and we moved to Australia when so I – So you were born in the UK? Yeah. Yep. We moved out here in um, 1985 when I was five. And uh, I basically – most of my memories are here in Australia. Yep. So I started – I was going to ask, yeah. you have much memories over a there? A little, a little. Yep. Um, I always feel some sort of weird connection with the UK when I go back there. Um, yeah, some sense of home or familiarity. Uh, but most, you know, most of my life I've been here in Sydney and I spent about a decade living in Melbourne as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just gonna They're still playing and singing now, mum and dad. Like awesome. dad did uh, five gigs in a row last week and he's just turned 79. So it's pretty awesome there. They're a real inspiration. Both yeah, that's cool. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, they're both still super active, writing music, still playing live and uh, still sounding amazing. And um, yeah. I actually got them involved in um, an album that I, uh, I'm still still completing but started last year yeah. and uh, they were amazing. They were so great to have involved and, you know, it wasn't an act of charity to have them there. It was, you know, I had them there for what they had to offer and they just sounded great. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. really fun to collaborate. Yeah. So when did music start for you? Uh, well, I um, <laughs> we were talking about this this morning actually. Apparently I started sort of leaning towards the piano around two or three years old. But, mm. you know, what? I don't, how much a two or three-year-old can actually play the piano is, you know, it's questionable. But I did love music from a really young age and I was playing properly by the time I was five. Um, and then I... L- lessons type stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I just loved it. I think, it, you know, mum and dad were also very mindful of not being sort of pushy stage parents um, but always gave my brother and I the opportunity to do stuff if we wanted to, if we sort of naturally, you know, went there ourselves. So I'd started with the piano and then uh, started playing the violin when I was eight. Uh, So those were my main two things and I sang in a choir um, about the same age from about eight or so. Uh, But I never – I was really shy. Um, I didn't really enjoy – performing um as a young person and all through high school I I I wanted to sing I started to sing solo a little bit but um I was yeah I was very shy and self-conscious so it you know it wasn't something that came the performance aspect of it wasn't something that came supernaturally I mean I loved it for the music and stuff like that but getting in front of people just was always terrifying so um how did you overcome that (laughs) <laughs> I think it's still a work in progress. Okay. <laughs> um, well, but, you know, like anything, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Right. And, so, I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes I'd have an absolute ball being on stage these days. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that's just a personality thing as well. Everybody's different. And I seem to be a little bit of a mix there because I certainly enjoy being the centre of attention at times, as a lot of my friends will attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, then I also can be, you know, quite 
shy as well. So I don't know. It's a strange combination of things, but um, I definitely have a more sort of introspective side that um, that's not always comfortable, I think, showing, being being like that in with an audience, you know. So um, I guess when I was about 18, um, I, I auditioned for the um, – the jazz course at the con here in Sydney. I actually, I went to high school there. And so I was finishing up high school and I, I knew that I didn't really want to carry on with the classical music that I'd been studying, um, not full time or professionally. And that was really mainly because I could see how much work was required to really make something of that is just very extreme. And the discipline required is really extreme. And I knew that I just didn't, I didn't have that in me really. So um, I... <laughs> foolishly thought that jazz was going to be way easier. Um, <laughs> and so I auditioned for the jazz course at the con as a singer. And it was one of my first sort of, you know, ventures into thinking, oh, maybe I could be a singer. And I, and I got into the course, which was a surprise. Um, and I, so sorry, I, sorry, explain, the, how did the audition go? Uh, the process. Um, I can't, oh gosh, I, it's, that's a long time ago now, you know, it's more than 20 years ago, but um, I believe you just had to prepare um, a couple of pieces. Yeah, I think I prepared two things. You had to improvise, um, which I'd had a really solid foundation in, in harmony, learning about harmony because of the school that I was at. So it was more, obviously everything at the con more came from a classical standpoint, but I guess the combination of having my parents and having that as a, a foundation at school, um, I had a pretty good grasp of, of um, classical and jazz harmony already. So, you know, improvising was never an unnatural thing for me. Um, I guess my dad is, you know, a pretty amazing, um, masterful improviser and it sort of removed, I suppose, the mystique of uh, oh gosh, that must be so hard. It was just always something that he just did it. And I guess I just thought, oh, well, that's just something you can do. And I didn't question that. And so that was probably a huge, um, I've never even thought about this, but that was probably a huge, um, bonus for me because I know for a lot of people, the idea of any sort of improvisation, whether it be in music or just generally in life, having to do something on the fly can be really um, frightening or, you know, very daunting. So I guess, you know, having that feel like something that was always possible is, was a huge um, advantage that I had from a young age. But the audition, yeah, I had to improvise and, you know, um, I think we had to do some sort of ear training test, like recognising some chords or something like that. And um, I think that was basically it. Uh, but it was tough because they weren't really wanting to allow singers in the course at that time. Um, and they, you know, the argument was that the course wasn't really set up for vocalists. And truth be told, it wasn't really set up for vocalists. And so me and another girl uh, actually got into the course that year and we were the first ones to be allowed into the Bachelor of Music course ever. Um, and we found that we, we got put into classes where... Oh, there's no vocal part. You just sing one of the horn parts, um, which, you know, uh, was was really useful as a tool um, for learning and um, not not super practical in terms of being able to use that outside of, you know, in real life. But um, having to sort of use your brain in a different way like that was, was great. And um, for the first time I had um, a, a singing teacher as well, which I'd never had, and I got sent to Kerry Bedell, who's... Uh, 
um, since passed away but was an amazing, amazing teacher. Right. And, uh, yeah, she was um, very tough, really hard on me, but, um, yeah, really, really, really great influence at that young age. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry about the whippersnipper too, by the way. Oh, I, I came, I, just I came, in case everyone um, <laughs> doesn't know, we're having this uh, interview in a very lush setting outside by the pool. And, um, Rec- recently built. Yeah, recently built. Yep. Beautiful deck area. And, I've been um, looking forward to the, having the first interview out here. Yeah, with the peace and quiet. With the peace and quiet. And the, that guy out there who's got the whippersnipper, he mowed his lawn about 20 minutes ago. And oh. I thought to myself, because you do your whippersnipping first. Right, of course. Like. Everybody knows that. You know, so um, anyway. anyway thanks, buddy. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's adding a little ambience. Yeah, that's all good. Um, <laughs> now, Growing up with your your mum and dad, were they giving you uh, were they giving you lessons? Here and there, I'd have a lesson with mum, okay, um, like a little singing lesson here and there, but not not really. I mean, but you know, we sort of grew up in a house where mum and dad were both teaching at home a lot, okay, and so we could always hear through the floor. Um, all the singing lessons coming up through the floor, every you know singing drill, exercise scale, um, and so. Even though if we weren't really taking the lessons ourselves, I mean, we were learning constantly just from hearing what they were doing with other people. Um, and, I, you know, I was involved. Mum and Dad still to this day run a little gospel choir called Jubilation. And so I would help out and be involved with that for quite a few years. So through that, obviously, you know, learning by osmosis as well, you know, for yep. sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, now, how long were you at the con? Um, I started there in year eight, so I did year eight to year 12. Yep. Um, and then I, I didn't realize it was actually, a high yeah, school, a high it's school. very small. Like they, okay. they have like one class per grade. Right. So, you know, 30 kids max per year. So it's a tiny little school. Okay. Um, but it was amazing going to school there. You're actually yeah. in the same building as the university. Um, and you have access to all the, all the teachers for the uni. Um, uh, we had, a lot of extracurricular stuff like, um, you know, um, orchestras, choirs, different chamber groups. Um, and, yeah, obviously very strong focus on the music component of the school, but it was a regular high school as well. Yep. Um, and you knew everybody in the entire school because it was mm. so small. Mm. Uh, and I st- I'm still close with a, a few people um, from the high school. Um, although it's interesting, not not everybody went on to work in music at all. So right. that, that's sort of an interesting fun fact. It happens, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I did 18 months for, uh, of the Bachelor of Music course and then I became a music school dropout after that. Right. <laughs> so during the high school part of it, was there um, a high school band type thing? A sort of away, let's say away from, away from the, the con itself. Not so much. I mean, a a couple of people uh, had stuff going on. And and in my later years at the school, like year 11, year 12, they started to sort of um, have a little bit more sort of jazz content in the school itself. Um, And then, but yeah, it was always surprising. I I mean, the, the main focus was classical. So... Not many people had little sort of side projects on their own. Um, but they just started as I was in, say, year 11 to be a little bit of a sort of faction of students who were really into jazz. And they would sort of have, 
you know, there was a, a handful of guys who are still working, you know, really successfully now in jazz or in contemporary music. Um, and that sort of all started in school on the side, just a little bit, but it was only a handful of people. Right. Can, you, can you name a few of those people? Um, yeah, there's a couple of guys that spring to mind. Um, Dave Symes, who's a wonderful bass player who um, I grew up singing with him in the Jackie Ozarski band for many years after school finished. And uh, he is now, one of the things that he does is now the bass player in Boy and Bear, the band Boy and Bear. Really? Um, but he's done, gosh, countless things over the years, was MD for Sarah Blasco and Missy Higgins and right. all, like all sorts of stuff and a very successful jazz player as well. Right. Um, another guy who was in school and I used to, we used to travel to school together every day because we both grew up on the northern beaches was um, Kim Moyes, who is half of the presets. Um, so we sort of went, he was a couple of years above me and he was in school to, school with me. Um, they're the main ones that spring to mind right now, but there's a little pocket and I think there's a couple of other guys. I think Harry Sutherland, uh, who's a, you know, really great keyboard player around Sydney. He has um, a little project of his own called... My gosh, the name escapes me. Australian athlete. Oh God, I can't remember. Anyway, something like that. Really cool synth project, but he's an amazing jazz player as well. Like, really has an incredible handle on the real trad style. Right. So it's really interesting seeing him go from that into this sort of like future synth, um, you know, uh, stuff that he's doing for himself. Yeah, yeah. super diverse guy. But yeah. yeah, there's a bunch of people. I can't think of everybody's names right now. But yeah, there's cool. always a little bit of stuff bubbling up on the side. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the dropout part. <laughs> <laughs> what was the headspace there? What were you thinking? <coughs> this is not me. Um, look, it was more I, I started gradually over the first year to get little bits and pieces of gigs coming up. And one of those gigs was, um, as I mentioned before, <coughs> excuse me, um, singing in this band with Jackie Ozarski and Tina Harrod. Um, and, you know, that... Working in that band was just an unbelievable education. Um, Jackie was like a really a master arranger of the entire band, but you know really had incredible arrangements of um, background vocals, uh, which was mainly my role in the band. A few little features here and there, um, but that I was starting to do work like that and. Uh, little other bits and pieces were just starting to, to come up, and I was I was working a lot doing kind of I was like well I'm I'm doing what I want to be doing you know and the study that I was doing um a lot of the information was stuff that I, I sort of already had under my belt um and I'm sure if I'd carried on I would have started to you know get into terrain that was new and unfamiliar but at the stage of the course that I was at it was all quite familiar already and my thinking at the time was I wasn't a very good student I was slack at, with attending I was more interested in just playing gigs or having a good time and um, I was kind of wasting my money really being there and I'd always thought okay I'm just going to put this on hold you know explore what's happening at the moment keep up this live work and see where that takes me and then I'll come back and finish the course later um, so that was the sort of thinking at the time and I've, I've never gone back yet uh, but I don't I mean I might still finish it one day I don't know I mean so, it, so it's still open for you to do that is I it? don't know I mean okay. I've deferred so I, I okay. you know that's that's a good point I might that might be cut off to me now but um, I I'm not you know I don't, I'm not anti-finishing it, but at the time it just didn't feel like it was the right path for me and I wasn't making the most of the course. 
and you know, I was I obviously thought I knew better. <laughs> and uh, and As then you did. how old were you then? I was like nineteen. Oh, of course, yeah, you know it yeah, all exactly. Yeah, I knew much more then than I know now. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I made the choice to quit, and then you know things have worked out one way or another. So I think it, it's all good. It's I'm not. Good, I'm yeah. not. I don't really live in regret of that at all. Yeah. 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 So then, what happened after the? Well, I just started getting more more work, I guess, and um, with different, and different bands. And yeah, projects. heaps of different bands. Okay. So uh, a couple of people really gave me a go early on, like Jackie, um, Rick Robertson, who's a saxophone player from Sydney, had a couple of different bands, Dig and Eon. Um, you know, he. Are you ga- played in Dig? Um, I wasn't in Dig, but I was in oh. Eon. Oh right. And okay. so he gave me a, a lot of breaks when I was really young, and I had. I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing at that time. So I was really lucky that, you know, I think because of mum and dad, people were open to just giving me a shot. Right. And usually even if I hadn't done it before, I figured it out pretty quick. So um, I kept, you know, just building up that live work around Sydney and then um, started to get sessions and it was just sort of one thing after another and um, I was also starting to write a little bit of music myself but during that time I was like on a deep discovery of soul music um right. which was sort of who were your who were your people um well initially really I mean just simple stuff like you know Stevie and Donny Hathaway I had a really deep Donny Hathaway phase for sure um I think I'm still in a deep oh, Donny yeah, Hathaway stage absolutely that's that one's for life <laughs> yeah. um, no doubt um but that was the first one for me so yeah. it was like you know I was just yeah, obsessed. Um, and, you know, a lot of other artists as well. Um, I've, I really gravitated more towards the male singers at first. I don't know why. Um, but they were my biggest influences at, at that time in those sort of formative years. And um, I was really going in on all that stuff. Also the also the JBs, um, James Brown and, and the JBs and really sort of into that whole thing as well. Now you um, mentioned James Brown. Mm-hmm. Where did I see your... I did. I was lucky enough to meet him once. Oh, you met him or you played and, um, with him? Well, I I opened for him on his last tour here in Australia. Really? Yeah, which was amazing. And um, we played the State Theatre and um, we got to meet him very briefly and right. meet the, meet all the band, like hang hang with them for sure and right. um, watched his whole set from the, from the stage, from the wings and everything. And um, that was amazing. I was still really young and right. – um, it was that was during a time when I was really making pop music more than anything. So okay. I was very lucky, I think, to get the gig. And in hindsight, there would have been far better choices probably to open for him at the time around Sydney. More more funky choices anyway in terms of the music that I was making at the time was okay. much more straight ahead R and B. But we, I I remember that night so clearly. We I think we still represented ourselves really well and. Um, we made our set as funky as it could be in that <laughs> that time. Um, but that was part of my roots too. So I guess, you know, I was able to sort of draw on that right. um, a bit at that time. And so what was he, what's he actually like? Well, we had very little close contact with him. It was all very cloak and dagger and I'm like sure. literally cloak. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, he was very much protected yeah, um, yeah. by, t- from any, any contact with anyone. He was quite, it was not long before he died yeah, okay. after that. So, you know, he was getting older and okay. has obviously lived a pretty colourful life. So, um, 
Yeah, we didn't look. It's not like we got to, you know, hang hey, out hey, and have a deep hey, and meaningful. Man. Exactly. <laughs> right. But, you know, yeah. we were introduced and his manager sent us a um, message at the end of our set, basically just said, you know, Mr. Brown wants you to know that he really enjoyed your music and this and that. So, oh, okay. you know, even that is um, is really special. That's it's cool. Pretty cool, yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, yeah, back to the influences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the influences. Well, I mean... Obviously, I went through that deep soul stage, but uh, prior to that, you know, I, I, um, I think my earliest sort of vocal influences were um, more in jazz, and funnily enough, they were female singers. So um, I really had a, a strong love for um, Sarah Vaughan. Uh, Dinah Washington was one of the first singers that I really, you know, got into, and um, I remember when CDs first came out. <laughs> Um, I had a handful of CDs and they probably speak a lot about who I've become and uh, hats off to my dad because I feel like he was the one that went to the CD shop with me and bought these. Um, so I had, um, the, I think it was the best of Dinah Washington. It was like a three CD set on Columbia, I think. And then I had En Vogue, Funky Divas, <laughs> um, Prince, Diamonds and Pearls, um, Ah, oh, there's a couple more, and who's the who's the woman singer on Diamonds and Pearls? Uh, Rosie name? Gaines. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, unbelievable, awesome, unbelievable singer, yeah, yeah. unbelievable singer, yeah. yeah, huge, huge influence, and so much respect for her. Gosh, yeah, she's beautiful. Um, but yeah, those. I mean, I I think all my listening was pretty diverse when I was young, and um, I you know I had the radio and whatnot, whatever was playing on Australian radio, which is not very diverse, but. Um, I also had a really strong love for, um, you know, classic quality Australian rock music, I guess, and bands, you know, that I still feel really connected to, obviously, Cold Chisel, In Excess, um, Dragon, technically maybe a New Zealand band, um, but, you know, all that kind of stuff really still um, resonates with me and is very nostalgic for me. And um, I had the chance to work with some of those people. So, you know, that was all, like I remember doing a gig with um, when I was 19, I got booked for this background vocal gig. It was one of my first BVs, proper BVs gigs. And one of the people on that show was um, Ross Wilson. And come said the boy was on the set list. And I remember the first time singing those woes. I I'm sure you know the bit that yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just losing my shit because <laughs> I was like, great. it's just the best song. And, you it know, is, like yeah. just pushes a lot of buttons for me from childhood and, yeah. you know, really brings back so many memories. And I remember just pinching myself and being like, fuck, I'm actually singing it with him. <laughs> like this is so cool. Great. So I would always love doing BBs, you know, right from the early days. I, I love it. I love singing with other people but also for me background vocals offers, you know, bring so much to – um, music, certain types of music and it's um, it's really fun to be able to harmonise. Now, when did you decide you wanted to, to um, start doing the pop thing? Well, um... Was that out of... It sort of just, it sort of just evolved. evolved yeah. I, I, I wasn't ever like in my mind thinking, right, okay, now I'm going to go down this road and try and become a pop star. Okay. Um, and if anything, it was more that I was pushed into that or guided in that direction, I guess, um, by some people that I started to work with. So um, at one point uh, I ended up uh, doing quite a few gigs uh, doing BVs for Renee Geyer 
who was a huge influence on me and still a huge fan of her. She's great. Especially her early records I love very much. Every time I hear Stares and Whispers, Mm -hmm. I cry. Yeah. It's an amazing song. Yeah, she's she's an amazing singer. Mm. So um, when that was another one of those moments where I got the call to go and do the gig and I was like shitting myself because (laughs) I I, I got the call the day before as well. It was like the night before and the gig was the next day. And, I mean, thankfully I knew a lot of the stuff just because I'd listened to the albums that many times. Um, But still I was really young when I was – that was I was 20 or something. So – Super nerve-wracking but very educational. She's not an easy person to work with sometimes. Um, but it was still great, really great for me and very much a learning curve. Uh, anyway, so I'd been working with her and then sort of one thing led to another and um, I'd, uh, I'd been working alongside uh, the Dolly brothers here in Sydney, Clayton and Lachlan, both amazing keyboard players. And, um, you know, the sort of scenes started to sort of join up and the dots started to join up and Clayton asked me to come along and sing one night with um, his band and sit in with his band. And that night um, he'd also asked another friend of his, uh, Jimmy Barnes, to come and sit in as well as Jimmy's daughter Mahalia. So that was a huge night for us because we all met that night, me, Mahalia, Jimmy, and um, it was at the Civic. And uh, we all sat in and sang together and then a couple of days later um, Jimmy called and said, what are you doing this weekend? Come on the road. And so <laughs> I did it and um, that sort of was the beginning of a whole chapter for me of a long period of work with Jimmy which is still ongoing um, here and there um, and, you know, that family have been uh, incredibly generous to me and, and basically, you know, we, we are family now yep, yep. Um, and my relationship with Mahalia is a very special one. Um, but it was around that time that I met uh, a man called Michael Hegarty who was Jimmy's bass player and still is now um, and he was starting a label and he'd sort of heard me sing a little bit, he'd seen me with Renee and he basically said to me at the time, he was just like, you know, I love what you do, I love that you're really soulful um, starting this label and we'd love to work with you. And that's when we started to put together my first sort of record and um, that, and he was unbelievably supportive of me in um, developing me as a songwriter, as an artist um, and facilitated some incredible opportunities for me during that time. Yep. Um, and This was your self-titled? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So yep. that all started in the early 2000s, that relationship, and yep. then that album I think came out in 2003 or something. So, yeah, we spent a couple of years. I mean, they sent me around the world numerous times to work with amazing songwriters and right. um, put me just in some incredible situations which you sort of dream about and, I mean, doesn't really happen in the same way now. You know, there's yeah. not really that same sort of investment in young artists. You're expected to just do it yourself do now. It. Yeah, that's it. You you go ahead and make your album, make your own video, put it out and once you've got a following, then a label will maybe get on board. You know, it's complete opposite of how it used to be, which is fine. I mean, it's just the way things are right now but I feel very lucky that I sort of grew up in a time where people were, you know, I guess the state of the industry was such that they could still spend money on developing uh, young artists and, and give you those opportunities that are so beneficial to you when you're just learning and you know and you're also protected as well you know you're not um you're very vulnerable I think when you're first trying to put yourself out there as an artist and that gives you the tools to you know having that support around you um helps to develop the tools you need to you know to survive all of that stuff and you know being in the public eye and all that kind of stuff 
Yeah. It just reminds me, Natasha Stewart told me a story about mm-hmm. when she had her... Love um, Natasha Stewart, just saying. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah, great girl, great um, singer. Yeah. Um, she and her band went to Nashville to do like a showcase. Mm-hmm. And they thought they were showcasing, you know, their their songs and their, what it actually ended up being was a whole panel of people who would come up to them at the end and say, well, if you pay me this much money, I'll be I'll <laughs> take you to this part of your career. And yeah. Man, it's sort of like a conference, basically, co- so people can exactly, exactly. pitch themselves at you. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like what you do, and and if you pay me, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've did you been in those that? circles, yeah, right, number of times, okay. different things, um, and especially these days, I think there's more and more of that. Yep. You know, yep. um, you know, there's all, there's these big showcase sort of festivals that happen around the world, which are don't get me wrong, they're amazing opportunities for people to play and be seen. Um, but a lot of the premise of that stuff is is the other side of it, like you're describing, where there are countless, you know, um, PR people, marketing agencies, yep. managers, um, all these things, and um, they're sort of hungry to try and align themselves with someone who looks like they're on the rise and maybe has a little bit of money to spend on yep. a PR campaign perhaps, you know. Yep. So yep. there is that whole sort of other side of it, which, you, you know, you, I think when you're ready for that and you know it's going to be that, it's fine. It's that just is right. what it's business. But yeah. when you're sort of fooled or lured into something, thinking that oh yeah, here we are, we get an opportunity to play in front of all these industry people. Yeah. When really all it is is a chance for them to pitch themselves exactly. at you, not the other way yeah. around. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's what that's, exactly. That's it's like, had no, they, they had no idea. They yeah, thought they were actually totally. Uh, you know, and, you know it's, like, it's like no one needs that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So um yeah okay so you released your self-titled mm-hmm. album. So how did that go? Um, well, I think looking back, it went really well. Um, I got a couple of big award nominations for Arias Mm -hmm. for the first album. And that was a time when there was virtually no, um, I mean, at the time they were calling it urban music. Um, but there was no sort of R&B or soul or hardly a little bit of hip hop, but hardly any, virtually no R&B here in Australia being made here. Um, and um, I wasn't the only one at the time, but I was I'm one of only a handful of people who were really trying to push that in the mainstream. And it was hard. It was um, very difficult to get any radio support. Uh, we had a decent amount of support with one single, So Hot Right Now, <laughs> still my most well-known song, which makes me laugh because I always thought it was kind of like a silly throwaway song. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, that, it, that was an amazing time for me because I – um, I, I did get quite a lot of critical acclaim for the album. Um, it was a lot of hard work to try and get any traction here in Australia and that's not even just something that's exclusive to R&B or soul music. It's just hard here. You know, music is not as deeply a part of the culture here as it is in other places in the world. But overall, um, that first album I think was really well received and, and you know, uh, set sort of set me up, I guess, with a place in the, in the, um, in the industry here. And um, garnered me a lot of opportunities to perform as well, which was amazing. Did some amazing shows and, you know, big sports events and stuff like that, which is just right. totally thrilling doing that stuff. Did you did you end up touring the world a bit with that stuff as well? Was it more, Not more, really. more I, local? It was more local. Yep. I mean, we had a little bit of opportunity of stuff overseas, but mm-hmm. um, it's it was quite difficult to break. And unlike now where everything is pretty much global because of the internet, I mean, we had the internet then, but it wasn't playing anywhere near as much of a part as it does today. Yep. So when that album came out, it was CDs. It was still all CDs. They're 
iTunes existed. Uh, Napster was around at yep. that time. Yep. Um, so the internet was just starting to become a, a, an influence on how things played out. Um, but it was really more about physical sales, like selling actual CDs. Um, so we, we, we did okay on that front. Not amazing, but we did okay. And I toured here. Um, I never did my own headline tour of Australia, but I did a couple of really big tours. Uh, the Guy Sebastian first tour when Mm -hmm. he was on Idol, um, Nelly, a few other people, John Legend, um, quite a few people around that time and had, yeah, did some great shows and had, had a lot of fun with that. Um, and after that record, I mean, that's where things really started to, um, we collectively decided, I guess, um, to really push things more in a very pop direction. And I'd, I'd been to Sweden a couple of times and um, written with some sort of Swedish producers and, um, yeah, things definitely moved away from this more soulful element that I think I had on my first record. And the second record that I made um, was also done during a time where I was working on TV a lot. Um, and my whole career sort of started taking this other direction. Um, was, which was that because you, you weren't up to battling your urban music? I don't know. Were, I mean, were you getting a bit burnt by the knockbacks? And I mean, that that's exhausting, yeah. you know, continuing to try and um, fight what when it doesn't fe- – it just feels like it's not a natural fit for here. Yep. What's really cool is that there's some really – I mean, that – that scene now here in Australia is really starting to flourish. But I feel like it's taken that long. This is like 16 years ago, you know, and it's taken that long for things to establish. Um, but back then it was hard and I, I don't think it was a conscious choice of, oh, I'm over this, okay. I'm going in this direction. But certain opportunities present themselves and you make your choice in which direction you move. And I'd had these, you know, offers to do these TV shows and there's also the element of survival. It's like you got to support yourself somehow and right. so you get it. Is that off- shows like Idol and – Well, I, I worked on a show called It Takes Two. Oh, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And I did three seasons with Channel 7. Okay. So that was basically full-time. Um, you're there. I was. I lived here in Sydney for the most part but um, I'm down in Melbourne four or five days a week shooting that. And um, so that – you know, the first season came around and it seemed like a great opportunity to get in front of a lot of people on TV. And I was working on my second album and, you know, we all decided, okay, well, this is, surely this is going to be a positive for your music. Yeah. Um, you know, millions of people are going to see you on TV every week. And what happened was interesting because my profile certainly um, got a huge boost through doing the TV work. What didn't happen was it, it did not um, convert to any music fans at all. So if anything, um, my music audience sort of I feel like went down with the second album. It had nowhere near – I mean I had nowhere near as much traction with the music even though I was on, you know, primetime like, Mm. um, you know, our ratings busting TV show, you know. So that was interesting and after the third season I – this is when Dancing with the Stars was still on. Um, before, now it's back. Yep. Um, but I got asked to do Dancing with the Stars and it was at that point that I'd, I'd put my album out. It had done nothing. Mm. Um, I'd done three seasons of this TV show which landed me in a world which felt um, very 
contrived. You know, reality TV is very produced. It's not much to do with reality. Yeah. Um, and I had I was just exhausted by that. I was exhausted by this sort of phony representation of reality. <laughs> and um, I didn't want to do another TV show. And so I turned down Dancing with the Stars and that was a real turning point because it was my first step away from that very commercial space that I'd ended up in and my feeling at the time was that I'd become a celebrity instead of a musician and I didn't want that. And that if that meant taking a hit financially, then so be it. So I, I actually really retreated at that point. I stopped, I stopped recording anything for quite a while. Um, I, I split ways with my label at the time, stopped doing TV. I mean, I, st- I was still performing, getting, you know, various gigs and that slowly sort of dwindled away over a year or two. And um, I just sort of, at the time I was married um, uh, and I sort of immersed myself in my husband's work. He was an artist as well, so we collaborated quite a lot. Um, and I just sort of took a break from putting myself out there and um, I was quite burnt out. Is this it. the shy girl coming back? Maybe. Um, yep. I think more than anything though I was just a little bit defeated and okay. had, you know, I just I needed time as well to regroup and go, well, what do I, if I'm not doing this then what actually do I want to do? You know, I don't, sometimes you need to step back and take, take a minute and zoom out and mm. try and figure out where the next – you know, where the next steps might be. So, yeah, at that that was sort of in the late 2000s that I really um, took myself out of the spotlight and tried to figure out who the hell I was again, you did know. It, did it affect you much mentally? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, okay. I mean... It, o- almost to a depression type. Oh, totally. I mean, oh, anybody right. who has put themselves out into the public eye and has spent, you know, numerous years... Mm. To, at whatever level, like, you mm. know, in the public eye and being scrutinised, which is what happens when you become known, um, it's it's can be incredible but it can be really difficult as well. You're constantly um, – there's a demand of you all the time. Nothing, nothing becomes personal. Everything is public. Um, you know, it puts a huge strain on all – on any, like, personal relationships that you have. Mm-hmm. You have no time, like, to look after yourself, all that kind of stuff. So it's hard to keep a balance. It's hard to stay healthy. Um, and then if you're crea- – if you're a creative and you're expressing yourself – and then, you know, sharing that with the world and then not not being able to have that, a connection to that from anybody, that's hugely depressing. But, I mean, it, it also taught me a lot of stuff about I'm a chronic pleaser. I've always been <laughs> a pleaser from when I was young. And so part of, you know, what I was doing at that time was really trying to make something to please the world, you know, like, you know, to get that validation from your audience and... I mean, the critical lesson I learned through all of that is that I needed to come back to a place of making music or whatever I was creating, doing that for my own satisfaction. And then if that's achieved and you get it, you know, and somebody else, you know, feels that or, you know, enjoys that, um, then that's just a bonus. So that was sort of where... I was working towards at that point, but wasn't there yet. But um, yeah, that was that was a huge turning point at that time. How long did you? Th- how long had you pulled away for? I spent a couple of years without really putting myself out there. Yep. Um, I, I still worked and played live to you know support okay. myself, but okay. 
I didn't, as, I didn't as, completely recluse, but I, I didn't. I stopped um, producing any music. I stopped okay. writing, um, and I just focused on work with other people. And yeah, I was going to say, were you performing live as um, solo or yeah, a little bit of solo BV, work, a little bit of solo work, yep. BV stuff, mm-hmm. stuff alongside um, Harley when he was doing Phrase mm-hmm. at the time. So you know, we collaborated a lot. I, I helped him co-write one of his albums mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, there was still I was still. I guess feeding my creative side in, in a way, but I wasn't putting myself as a person out there into the world at all. Yep. Yeah, at that yeah. point. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So when did you start seeing a bit of light at the end of the end of that tunnel? <laughs> well, that's I guess that's a complicated story, but mm-hmm. um I I think it was around two thousand and twelve, something like that, I started um uh a project called Dune. And that was my first little foray back into making music. And it was much more experimental than anything that I'd done publicly before. Um, I sort of discovered this love of um, old analogue synths and um, a lot of old recording equipment, built a studio. Um, You know, a lot of this was in collaboration with um, my husband at the time. And we sort of got right into the whole recording process. I learned a lot about engineering and um, started writing this music, which was much more production-based, you know, it was m- much more um, musically abstract than what I'd done before. Not not really abstract, but much more abstract than it was not mainstream pop music at all. Um, so it was sort of like indie synth, synth um, soul, I guess, a little bit soul, but <laughs> um, that was a really, really fun project for me because I I sort of did that I was like I don't care what anyone thinks of this I'm just going to make something that I find interesting where I enjoy the process and um, that was sort of my prerogative with that project and we did one EP I collaborated with a couple of um, amazing musicians from Melbourne where I was living at the time Um, Luke Hodgson who's a bass player and is still a very close friend and Lee Fisher another a drummer from down there so the three of us would play we did a little you know a couple of runs of tours and played live just the three of us and that was also my first time playing live playing keyboards and singing. I was going to say, were yeah. you singing and playing keys yet? Yeah, which I'd mm. never done that before. Um, and we were running a lot of loops and th- different things on backing track and it was very textured music. So yep. to play it completely live, I would have needed a huge band. Um, and, you know, it was all self-funded. So there wasn't really um, the opportunity for that at the time. But um, that was, I guess, the start of me trying to make my way back. And I did, a, a you know, one EP, one full EP. And I, I did, I wrote a lot of stuff towards um, a full record um, for that project over the, the following years, um, which sadly never um, came to see the light of day uh, because um, my marriage, my marriage ended and um, it had become you know, it was my project, but it had become quite a collaborative thing as well. And, um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't kind of carry on with it on my own. Didn't feel like the right thing. So that was super sad for me because I'd really invested a lot of time and energy into it and felt like I'd made some great stuff as well. So it was really sad. That was a very, one of the most sad things about, um, the breakup of, of our marriage. But I guess, um, where, where that ended up was, um, you know, it took, uh, that was another shutdown point 
I was another shutdown point. At that time, right. I, I couldn't even listen to music. It was quite strange. I couldn't listen to any music. It just would trigger me immediately. Any, any, any song would just set me off. I got very, obviously, it's a terrible time. Anyone who's been through any kind of breakup knows what that's like. But I couldn't listen to music. And then that went on for about six months. And then eventually, it was around the time when um, that um, Solange album came out with um, Cranes in the Sky um, and not the current one, previous one. Mm. And it was around that time and I remember that came out and I was like, oh, my God, I can listen to music again. And I <laughs> listened to that whole album like I laid down on the floor <laughs> just <laughs> did all sorts of weird shit. But um, I, I kind of got myself back together and then um, it was also around that time that I got the call to um, go on the road with Joe, um, who I had met earlier done a little bit of work with earlier um but it was almost like i don't know just some sort of magical Perfect gift timing yeah where i didn't have a house i was you know back at mum and dad's i'm still back at mum and dad's but anyway <laughs> um <laughs> i was but i'd literally just had to move out of my my you know my own home and i didn't have anywhere to go i didn't ha really have any work i'd sort of abandoned this project that had been my sole pro, pro um project for a couple of years and then this gig came up and I was like do I want to go around the world and you know travel get to play live see all these amazing places even get paid to do so and it was just like it couldn't have been a better thing at a better time it was amazing so um that sort of happened and then over that first year on the road with him I very gradually started to write music again here and there and um we got a great guy in the band. Uh, his name's Paulie Sarah, and he's the saxophone player in the band. But he's also a, a great songwriter and and singer in his own right. Sounds he's sort of like a little bit Ray Charles esque, very bluesy, um, but great songwriter. And so he was really encouraging me to you know get back into it basically, and started sort of writing songs on the road a little bit that year, and then. I decided over the course of that year, I was like, right, okay, I'm, I'm going to make another record. And I'd sort of landed in this completely other world. You know, I'd, I'd really gone in on this indie world with like all my synths and like all this <laughs> sort of abstract music I was making. And then all of a sudden I'm right back sort of into my roots of like yeah. blues yeah. and, um, you know, the music that I was starting to write was like there were soul songs. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make a soul record. And so last year... I sort of spent the first six months while we were on the road really, really pushed myself to to write all the time. And because um, I'd, you know, I'd been through a lot um, and it it took me a while to be able to articulate that in music. Yep. Um, but once I started, I'd, I sort of just really went for it and I was, I was quite, I guess, reasonably prolific with the writing over a short space of time. And, um, you know, our average day on the road is um, it's pretty cushy, our schedule. Yeah. <laughs> our, our call time generally every day is about 3.30 in the afternoon. So we sort of have the mornings to ourselves. And sometimes we have really late nights, so a lot of people like to sleep in. But I tend to get up early. And um, so I was just really trying to maximise those mornings. And so I'd get up every morning. I was also really trying to look after myself. So I'd be up, I'd try to exercise or do something healthy for myself. And I got a bit into meditation. And um, I'm a bit scatty for it. I'm still working at it. But um, 
I think uh, it's a lifelong process. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, everybody says it's not about doing it perfectly, but I tend to be that perfectionist type. So um, anyway, um, I got into the riding on the road and, and then had two very short gaps from tour last year here here in Sydney. One in September, one in October, and one was like five days and the next one was four days. They were mm. ridiculous breaks. I realistically didn't need to come home, but I decided that I wanted to record. So on the first gap in September, I came back and spent three days, great studio here in Sydney called Golden Retriever, which is in Marrickville. And um, recorded all the songs with the band. I did all the lead vocals live with the rhythm section. And um, all the all the finished vocals. Yeah. Oh great. Yeah. So we did all the final vocals just oh, that's so cool. down, and we we um, recorded everything to tape, and um, and we did fourteen songs in the three days. So it was a it was wow. a huge session for me. I'd, I'd never recorded like that either, which seems crazy. But we've got some birds happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um But I'd never I'd never recorded live with a band, and oh. you know Mahalia had always. She's always has always recorded live with a band. She okay. thought she'd always told me she's like, oh, it's so much better. You should just do it like this. But I'd always made pop music or R and B or whatever, where it's just sort of comes together in stages. You know, it doesn't doesn't all happen in one one hit. So this was my first time, and I just couldn't believe how much more I enjoyed it, how much better I sang, just the dynamic of working with everybody and responding in real time, and also my band just played so great, and I. The, you know, the, the band that I used are all musicians that I've really worked with since those very early days in the early 2000s, um, you know, when I first started gigging in Sydney. They're guys that I've known my whole life. As I said before, my dad um, played all the uh, keys, the piano and whirly stuff. Um, so I was just sort of really in my, you know, very happy place having all these people who I'd known my whole life all surrounding me. And then on the next break in October when we came back, I recorded all the horns, all the percussion um, and all the background vocals, which I had just this incredible dream team of singers join me. And again, just, you know, people who I've sung with forever and, you know, we all can just sing together so easily because we know each other so well. Um, yeah, so it was this amazing experience putting it all together and... Um, I've just, I'm just about to send that all off for mastering. So, oh, great. So, it's you, yeah, mi it's mixed, it's mixed. Great. And, um, uh, a guy called Justin Stanley mixed the album, and he's, um, uh, if you don't know him, he's an amazing producer. Uh, he's also the husband of uh, amazing artist Nika Costa. Um, so I, I, I reached out to him first, and I was so happy that he said yes. I just, I'd always been a fan of Nika when I was really young and, um, looked up to her a lot. And I knew that he had this very intimate relationship with the, you know, female vocal. Yep. Um, what sort of stuff had he produced or mixed before? Um, well, what comes to mind? Uh, he's done a lot of different stuff, but recently stuff like Jamie Lydell. Uh, I think he worked with Prince. Um, I, gosh, I don't know his CV off by heart, but um, many, oh. many people, yeah. Sorry, that's the gum nuts. Oh, it's the gum nuts. Yeah, the like, bloody things, anyway. yeah. Um, <laughs> It's all, yeah. it's all happening out here. <laughs> it is. We're we're out in, in, nature. in nature. I like it. Um, but, yeah, mainly I, I wanted to work with him because of what he'd done with Nika and I knew that he would have a, a really cool sort of take on the style of what I've made, which is very old school. It's very 50s, 60s. All the songs are really very much in that vein and the way we recorded everything was very... Did you record to tape? Yeah. yeah we yeah. recorded everything to tape. 
Um, I mean, it's a combination of tape and digital. Oh, oh, so, course, you know, yeah. it comes, it came out of the tape and into the computer. Yep. And then, you know, when we go to mastering it, it's going to go back into tape again. So yep. <laughs> that's a big part of the sound. And I try to, you know, I try to do a lot of it authentically. Um, things are different now to what they were then. So, I mean, it, I didn't do it in a way that was completely throwback, but... Um, but I feel like we did capture a lot of sort of genuine spirit of that time uh, in the way that we put it all together. And my friend Dave Symes that I mentioned before, um, the bass player, uh, he he came in and uh, helped us out on the tracking days so that I could be freer to just sing and um, he sort of just helped me keep track of what everybody was doing and co-produced on, on those days, which was amazing to have him there again, someone that, I mean, I went to high school with him and we've known each other for a very long time and worked together. Yep. You know, we learned how to play music together, yep. you know, so it was pretty special having all those people around. Yeah, great. Who, who was your band? Um, well, the rhythm section was uh, Hamish Stewart on drums, uh, Jonathan Schwartz on double bass. So the whole record is double bass. That's all double bass. Yeah. Yep. Um, Carl Dewhurst is on guitar. Clayton Dolly plays organ. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad on piano and whirly. Um, the horns is James Greening, played uh, trumpet and trombone. And uh, Matt Keegan played saxophones. We had some Barry and some um, tenor sax on there. A very dear old friend, um, Ian Bloxham, played all the percussion. And um, he's someone I've known all my life. And uh, he has a son my age who's also a very talented musician, Felix Bloxham. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that name. Yeah, he's a fantastic drummer. He's, he's done a lot of different stuff. You mm-hmm. would have seen him around for sure. Um, and uh, who else? We, we had a great array of singers uh, to, to sing on the album too. So my mum did my mum, Joy. Uh, Mahalia was there. Juanita Tippins, who's my other friend that I collaborate with mm-hmm. all the time. Um, Prinny Stevens was there. We had Rebecca Jensen, um, Gary Pinto, uh, Darren Percival and Mark Williams. Yeah, so that's a super it was, team. Man. It was a real powerhouse. And we did one song, well, a couple of songs that were like a big sort of choir section and it just it's just sounded unbelievable. I've got goosebumps now just thinking oh, about great. it. It was really cool. Yeah. So in picking that um, – that bunch of singers. Are mm-hmm. you picking them for the for their certain? I'm, I'm speaking from someone that doesn't sing and have always sure. been fascinated by yeah. harmony and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You selecting them based on what their range is and wh- how you want. Yeah, that's t- definitely part of it. Yep. I mean, range is part of it. Everybody's voice sits more comfortably in a certain area. Um, I think the biggest consideration with that's with for this for me was tone and phrasing. So. Um, you know, I wanted people who really understood that old school sound as all of us do because we all love it. Um, but tonally, you know, I really wanted um, some great texture to the sound. And so there's a couple of songs that ended up just being my mum, Darren Percival, Gary and Mark Williams. And I just really wanted to go for a sound of it just being like really quite... Um, I don't know what the right words to describe it, but um, not a not a clean, you know, super nice sound. I wanted yeah. something with a lot of character, and yep. and um, my mum will have to forgive me for saying this, but something with a bit of depth and age to it too, you know, and and a contrast to my voice. Like my voice can 
Uh, I, I'm always booked for the sessions where they need a happy voice. You know, I just sound right. happy. My, I've got the happy voice. So okay. <laughs> I've got the happy voice and I, I wanted something to sort of, you know, counter that. And so when they sang against, you know, my voice, it was just a great compliment because it had so much earthiness, so much texture to the sound, a lot of character, some depth. And you can't really emulate that sound of a long life in a voice. Um, any sort of artist who managed to sustain to a an older age you hear their voice and it just it carries so much in it that it didn't have necessarily yeah, when it I was understand. younger yeah. you know it's like yeah. Aretha Franklin was always incredible yeah. but you know she sounded like one thing when she was 18 and then it later in life sounded yeah. completely different you know yeah. it just has those stories are all there so for me that was a big consideration too and um you know I, I tend to be a bit um fussy with you know with phrasing and pocket you know, so mm -hmm. uh, everybody there was obviously very, very has a very strong game across all across all things. But everybody was there for you know their own special reason. Mm. Um, yeah. Did you all come together on those recording days and say, "Okay, guys, here are the songs," or did you have them sort of prepped and you, you sent them back and go, "We're we're going in, we're doing this." No, no one had heard anything when we when wow. we got there. So, I mean, that's the other thing is with having singers of that caliber. You know, everybody's, everybody can just work on the fly and, you know, everyone has an amazing ears and is very used to just going, you go here, you go here, okay, cool. Um, and we all, the other part of that is that we've all sung collectively in various different formations mm. for a long time. So okay. you know the nuance of the next person. Oh, sure. you're you don't even think about it, but your your subconscious knows, you know. So, yep. um, but we not we none of it was rehearsed, and mm. it was all just done on the fly. And we did we did eleven songs in one day. Um, it was a lot, but um, everyone was amazing. Just up for it, you know. They were up for it and sang so so great too. It's like still one of my favorite parts of how it's all turned out for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So when do you think that'll be mastered and released, even? Oh, well, you know, it's um, it's it's a big push doing something on your own and it's yep. like I've, I've sort of come full circle and I'm having the extreme opposite experience of what I had when I was first starting out <laughs> where I had a lot of money being thrown at me and spent yep. on me and a lot of people doing stuff for me to being one single person basically doing all of that stuff, funding all of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had a lot of... Um, great support as well from my my um, family and team of uh, friends um, but at the same time it's a lot of work to actually get anything out there these days and I, I'm also uh, mindful I'm not in a crazy rush you know so um, once I get the masters back which is soon um, my plan today this is where I'm at today but these plans have become very fluid it seems mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but my plan at the moment is I'm, I'm going to try and get one song out um, before like around the middle of this year mm -hmm. so um, try and push something out then I've actually got a break from tour for the whole of July uh, sorry whole of June and some of July so I want to try and use that as a real focus period for myself mm -hmm. and um, and get something out there in the world and um, you know then Realistically, I don't think the entire album will be out until next year. Okay. Um, but hopefully, you know, a few songs between now and the end of the year. Yep. And um, and then you know the the whole record, you know, sometime hopefully early next year, will everything will be out. But um, yeah, it's a very different climate these days. You know, people. Yeah. Like it's old school even just to make an album now. Yeah, yeah, you for know, sure. To make an album is like sort of a foreign concept. You just yeah, yeah. What? You gotta be you gotta believe in it too, and mm -hmm. and also maybe but have that have that. 
not that expectation, but think that maybe not everybody's going to hear a whole album. Mm-hmm. And um, and and be okay with that. I be suppose, all right eh? with that, exactly. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, it's important to like I want to try and connect with a, a new audience, reconnect with my old audience. Yep. Yep. Um, and I, th- for me, I think the best way to, to do that at the moment is just to take that a little bit slowly, go song by song. You know, mm-hmm. take give give people one song. Yep. Um, I find, you know, most people's attention span these days yeah. is like lasts for about. 30 seconds, like literally. So they might love something for a second, but then it's it's on to the next thing because you're just flooded with constant stimulation. I mean, I'm, I'm exactly the same. Um, so I think just to put the whole album out, you know, it's kind of like, well, you're still only going to get that 30 seconds for the whole album. So That's you it. may as well, you know, take it slow, um, get the music out there. Hopefully people respond to it and enjoy it. Mm. Um, I'm trying to set up some uh, gigs here in Sydney for when I'm back mm. Uh, in June and also down in Melbourne. So uh, hopefully that all comes together in like mini little, you know, launch tour kind of thing. Yeah. Um, thank, thank you for the invite. Oh, weekend. yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sorry I couldn't make it but I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a. You're a dad. Well, I'm a dad. I'm a soccer coach now. Oh, they, so, oh my gosh. Even, you know, even more full on. Under 11 superstars. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know, I know what kids sport can yeah, be yeah. like. It's serious business. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, you know, I, it's been great. I've done a couple of, um shows here in Sydney over the last six months and had such a good time and a really such a positive response to all the new music Um, and and just starting to reconnect with some of my old audience, which is really nice. So um, hopefully that just continues to build Mm. and, um, you know, we can snowball a little bit. And we have actually got some exciting shows booked uh, in August. Um, So Joe... uh, Every year runs um, a cruise around, well, usually it's around the Caribbean um, in February and um, leaves usually from Florida somewhere and five days around the islands and then back again. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it is, it's it's a blues cruise and it's just basically a five days of nonstop music, like a festival on a cruise ship. Yep. Uh, And the first time, I've performed on it a couple of times with him, um, and the first time I was sort of dreading it. I I didn't like the idea of being on a cruise ship to start with. I just thought it was going to be shit. And then (laughs) got out there and just had the time of our lives. Um, The the lineup was really strong. So, you know, there's seven or eight stages operating all day long, all night long. Um, And, you know, some from little sort of loungy, more loungy rooms to big, you know, open air stages and stuff like that. So it's a variety of different settings um but great music at all times of day there's big jam sessions yep. um it was a great time really great time and everybody who gets on that boat it's about three thousand guests but everybody who takes that trip is obviously super into music otherwise they just wouldn't be there you know so this year they're doing the first uh run at this around um the mediterranean so um i'm super excited to be playing not only with joe but um, me and my band are on the bill for that cruise which is in august so we go from uh barcelona to malta and uh, to Monte Carlo, uh, and it's like six days. Wow, yeah, yeah, awesome. super, super cool. And it means I can bring like mum and dad are part of the band, so you know oh, they cool. get to come and we get to have that experience together. And yeah, um, it's that's uh, incredible. Yeah, it's gonna yeah. be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about touring life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow you guys on Instagram, and it looks like you have so much fun. Um, we do. But you know, there's also the other side of it too. That there would be the, you know, the, the the downtime, which, you know, you've made the most of by writing. and mm-hmm. But 
you know, tell us what it's like those times when, yeah, it must it must get pretty low sometimes. Eh? Here and there. I yeah. mean, I, I think my default is I'm most of the time a pretty optimistic person. So okay. I think it's harder for some other people than it is for me. I just, okay. I'm, I find it easy to <laughs> make a good time wherever I am. Okay. But, um, Boredom is definitely a factor at, t- at, at times. Um, you know, some of the uh, locations that we end up in are not very exciting, you know, small towns, some pretty down and out towns sometimes, you know, especially in America, um, towns that have definitely seen better days, maybe not particularly safe either. So uh, on a day, in our average day, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is, um, you know, we're, we're required to work from 3.30 in the afternoon. We go to sound check. Uh, we get ready for the gig. We do the gig. Um, the way we travel is on a bus. So we travel at night. Um, we finish the gig and about 15 minutes after we get off stage, we're on the bus and we're driving to the next town. Mm. Um, so those drives are anywhere between two, one hour, two hours, 18 hours. It wow. just it just depends on the schedule. But a lot of the time it's about, you know, a four or five hour drive. So you'll drive and then at about three o'clock in the morning um, – you'll arrive at the hotel. Uh, we've got beds on the bus, so usually we'll go to bed and then three in the morning, get up, go inside to your hotel room. Um, and that obviously changes day to day depending on how long how long the drives are and stuff like that. But, you know, sometimes you'll end up in a town that, you know, doesn't necessarily have a lot to offer in terms of, you know, sightseeing or activities or food or um, anything like that. And, uh, particularly in the States, it can be hard to stay healthy. It can be hard to find decent food during the day. Right. We are extremely well looked after at the gig. We have excellent catering, super healthy. Um, but, you know, it's some of those sort of, you know, beaten down towns. It, you know, it's you, you, if you've got nothing to do um, and you're just stuck in your hotel room, which is maybe not the greatest hotel room, then, yeah, that can get a little bit depressing but yeah exactly but Mm. i mean i the one thing i will say is those times where we're not in a very nice place are pretty few and far between like joe is insanely generous with the way that he looks after us so um even in those towns we're like we're we're always in a decent place and you know he sort of makes sure of that and like we're incredibly well looked after so um I mean, I, I'm just super thankful for that because, you know, it's it's not like that for everybody. So um, he really values his whole team and um, there aren't many people who are only there for a minute. It's usually if you're actually asked to be a part of that, that touring party, you're usually there for a long haul, which says a lot about the way they run things and about everybody who ends up in that touring party. Um, and it's like a big family, you know, everybody, you know, of, of course there are, you know, p- different personalities and, you know, differences of opinion and different, you know, little factions within the group. But, you know, we all basically live together for weeks and weeks at a time and, um, you know, really managed to have, for the most part, a great time together. So um, I'd like to say that, yeah, well, you know, we have these down and out times, but I mean, for me, I, I've had nothing but a good time so far and um i guess that's why i'm still doing it you know this is my third year with him almost full time so uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't be there if it wasn't great you know and the same goes for on stage too like he just delivers night after night as does the whole band you know everybody has a moment here and there but um you know not much you know not much it's very consistent show Mm. yeah one of the first 
TV drummers I ever saw was mm-hmm. Anton Fig. Aha, uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And I had his signature drumsticks and everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is when I was living in New Zealand. Oh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. Yeah, he's, he's great. Anton is a very funny man as well. He's got a great sense of humour. And he recently uh, introduced me to some hilarious old clips of him on Letterman, which I think that was, I, I was always too young when it was on. It was like on super late at night. I was Mum and Dad had us in bed at like 7 p.m. or something. So I missed a lot of that stuff. But um, he... He is very, very quick to make fun of himself. He's got a great sense of humour. And he did some hilarious stuff on Letterman. I think he showed us a clip recently where he um, wasn't actually real, but it looked very real, ate the head off a budgie, like off oh. a, a, some sort of parrot. Was it Ozzy Osbourne on the show or something? I can't remember. <laughs> it was some some sort of thing. And then apparently the next day they had all these letters yeah, of yeah. complaint <laughs> from all these animal rights yeah. um, organisations. And so they had to go back and explain that actually that was a fake bird and fake blood and, <laughs> and like do this whole explanation because there, there was all this hate mail coming in for Anton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which he's a very sweet man. He's yeah. um, obviously an, an extremely skilled musician and again super consistent on the gig and the gig for him is extremely physical and he's a hard-hitting drummer and you know he's not getting any younger either so I'm always amazed at you know his energy level you know just being so on point every night and um and just you know bringing that a game is pretty remarkable to me at that age I mean I find sometimes for me to maintain focus um, you know, if we're at the end of a long run and we haven't had any nights off in a few nights, you know, it's 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 hard to continue that concentration and get everything right and stay present, you know. And so I'm always amazed at the other guys that, you know, they're all getting close to or above 70. So not oh, Joe, yeah. but um, right, yeah, the rhythm yeah, section. Yeah. And so... Um, How old's Joe? If you Joe's only, um, I think he's 41. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 41. he was sort of child prodigy type. Yeah. Thing, you know, yeah. I mean, he's yeah. been active in his career since he was like 10 or yeah. something like yeah. that. Um, so he's been doing it for a long time already. Uh, but, you know, he's he's a, he's a still a young man, really. Um, but he, he would argue that he's an old man in a young man's body. But, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, play, he plays. Oh, he's phenomenal. Uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, r- r- really just beyond talented, just a freak. Mm. Yeah. So he sort of, he travels... Mm-hmm. So you guys travel on the bus? He's yeah, well, you have, he has his own bus. Uh, okay. we, the whole band are in one bus. Okay. Um, the bus itself is a bit of fun. It's got a couple of different lounge areas and okay. the centre section of the bus is all bunk beds and the back is the lounge and the front is a lounge. The front's sort of got a kitchen and stuff. So, okay. um, you know, we've always got a, got various snacks and breakfast stuff in the bus. And right. um, So you have, you have caterers on the bus? We don't have caterers on the bus. That actually okay. tends to be Mahalia and I. Okay. Um, we do a lot of the bus catering <laughs> for the band. Okay. But it's all just snacks for late uh, okay. night and breakfast if we're there in the morning and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, we're, again, on that whole thing of being looked after, anything, you know, that we need, like if some per- certain person only has oat milk from this brand or whatever, like almost all of our sort of requests are accommodated. So it means that, you know, you're not ever sort of feeling like really, you know, you're not ever feeling so much like you're away from home either because you have a lot of the stuff that you might have in your regular routine. Uh, And I think that really helps to keep everybody um, healthy for a start and also just happy. You know, you're not feeling sort of cut off from your normal life. You are to a certain extent, but having those regular things helps to maintain some sort of level of normality when mm-hmm. you're away. Yeah. Yep. So um, apart from so yourself, uh, Juanita, Mahalia, mm-hmm. yep. 
um, is the rest of the band um, in the States? Yeah, they're all American. Uh, okay, yep, yeah. yep. So Joe's um, – Joe loves Australia. He likes Australians too. His girlfriend is Australian. And um, the producer that he works with, um, Kevin Shirley, is yep. uh, based in Australia a yep, lot of yep. the time and has had a lot of history here in Australia. Uh, so that – it was via Kevin – that um, the connection to Joe came about. Um, okay. Kevin Kevin knew Mahalia really well and yep. he thought that they – Because Kevin's worked with Jimmy. With Jimmy. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. And so um, he thought that Mahalia and Joe would be good collaborators and so they were introduced to each other and then they ended up – they made an album together, um, which was all the – Joe new, and Mahalia did? Yeah. Oh, wow. This is a few years ago, okay. so maybe 2014. And um, it was all the music of Betty Davis. Really interesting album, really great album called, um, I think it's called Ooh Baby. Um, and, um, or, no, Ooh Yeah. Sorry, it's called Ooh Yeah. And um, uh, worth checking out if anybody is listening. Uh, so when they made that album, Juanita and Mahalia and I did all the background vocals on that. And eventually Joe came out to Australia and they play, we played two shows here to sort of launch that project. And that's when he met us for the first time. Um, and, you know, we, I, I, um, he, Joe takes a long time to relax socially with people. So we barely got to know him at all on that trip. Um, but uh, about a year after that, Kevin suggested us for a one-off tour with him over in the States, which was going to feature the music of the Three Kings, so B.B. King, Albert King and Freddie King. And they wanted to bring in this background vocal component to the band. And uh, Kevin suggested us to Joe and he thought it was a great idea. And so that was the first time that three of us girls worked with Joe for his stuff. Um, And then since then, on and off, basically some members of us have been, apart from a short period at one point, you know, some members of us have been in the band ever since. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's yeah, really great. Yeah. Um, you know, so the rest of the band is from over there and we've often sort of raised the point of like, you know, there are there are vocalists in America, you know, you could always pick someone else yeah. up. Um, and they did try some other girls one time okay. um, who were from the States who had come highly recommended and I'm sure they were great singers but – for whatever reason, they were really not happy with them and um, that it didn't work out. And it was I think a lot of it is also personality. Um, mm. I think part of the reason why Joe likes Australians is because we're laid back, you know, and we get along with people easily, we just make stuff work. We don't play the diva card and make ridiculous demands. Make things difficult. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm know. sure it's hard enough. Eh? Mm-hmm. Mm. Exactly. And, you know, he's got these sort of slightly crotchety old men in the band and so I'm sure he's, he's getting enough demands from them. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm kidding. They're, they're all sweethearts yeah, but, yeah. you know, they don't need any more sort of, you know, difficult personalities around. So I think that was a big part of why we ended up being back there and they didn't go with these other girls that they had. So Great. that's nice. Yeah. yeah it's, it's and really we're cool. all, I mean, obviously we've all become good friends now too. Yeah, awesome. So looking past... Um, you know, this cruise you got mm-hmm. coming up. Um, what can you see in the next 12 months? Well, I can tell you what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to obviously get all the music out there. Um, but really my my vision for myself at the moment that I'm, I'm trying to manifest is uh, I, I want to reestablish myself um, as an artist. I feel like I've really settled back into yep. making soul music. It's time, yep. And, you know, I've really sort of, reconnected with 
music that's soulful and particularly now more blues influenced and I'm sure that's partly to do with, you know, the work that I'm doing with Joe. But again, that feels very natural um, and I really just want to keep pushing that and be able to balance that um, obviously with the work with him, which I, I'm completely enjoying and I don't intend to give that up unless I get the axe. Um, and, you know, really just try to get myself back in a position where I can be performing my own music, you know, at least, you know, half of the time and doing that in a way of, of quality as well. You know, I, I don't really want to do stuff where I pick up bands in different cities. Like I love the band that I'm working with at the moment and as far as is humanly possible, I want to try and just keep that as a unit. Um, particularly while my while my parents are still around, you know, my dad will be 80 next year and these opportunities to collaborate the way we are are not going to carry on forever. And so I think for this this period of what I'm doing, it's, I mean, I want to retain that as much as possible and keep that going and I can see how it really energises them as well. So that's a big part of the, the picture at the moment is trying to, you know, make the most of this sort of family connection that we're having um and yeah just really you know i i really just want to keep that rolling and i I really would love to um establish that overseas it's it's really my main focus um because as much as i love being here uh the fact is you know there's not a huge amount of stuff to do here as a soul artist um Mm. it's getting to be a little bit more easier i think a tiny bit but there's just not a huge scene for it here in australia and whereas you know, once you've played overseas as well, you you definitely understand that music holds a different part of people's lives overseas. You know, there's that much more, um, that much more investment. You know, into actually um, committing and and immersing yourself in in going and seeing someone live. You know, not just whatever comes up on your Spotify. Oh yeah, this is cool. You know, actually going to see a live show and yep. you know and that that being something that's just a huge part of what you might do every week is go to a concert, you know. And obviously that, you know, I understand people have, um, you know, not everyone can go to a concert every week and everything costs money and all that kind of stuff. But yep. I do get the feeling that overseas it that's facilitated a little bit more as well just culturally. You know, it's not it's not as easy here in Australia to go out and see live music without spending a hundred bucks. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like it'd be great if it was. Um, but particularly, you know, here in Sydney with all the lockout laws and all that stuff, it's just like it's it's we're the ones that sort of lose out. But also the public lose out, course, yeah. you know, because they don't get to just go and consume great music. You and know. young musicians miss out too. Cause exactly. They don't, they, have, they don't have that sort of. places to play anymore. And the lineage. Exactly. exactly you know, yeah. so they don't have that, which I'm so thankful, you know, our generation was sort of the last one yep. to have that privilege, mm-hmm. you know, and like be mentored by all those great players. And now, yeah, it's a, just a different culture. So, um, and out of that, other things are evolving. Like, you know, it's not like everything's ending. It's just changing. Yep. And that's cool. But, you know, it's it's definitely different now. So, mm. yeah, I think overseas for me, I, I really want to try and make that a focus for next year for sure. Great. Yeah. Well, Jade McRae, thank you so much for um, joining me today. Thank being you. Being on the podcast. It's um, been great. I've um, really <laughs> enjoyed our chat, I was going to say. But really, I just talked the whole time. No, that's good. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. Oh, it's been um, great. Thank you for yeah, having me on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing your new mu- your new music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, yeah, following your travels with Joe and mm-hmm. whatever happens. Yes, 
Awesome. Lovely. All right. Thank you, Jade. Thank you. Catch ya. Bye. Yeah.
care. I handle me with care. 